I have something new to tell you. Hi, it's Keith from the Book of Constellations. I want to invite you to my new podcast called The First Episode Of. It's a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. In each show, I listen to the first episode of an indie audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, their struggles, and successes. It's a great conversation for anyone interested in storytelling and creativity. And with so much talent and variety out there, you're sure to find your next favorite audio drama by listening. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts or at thefirstepisodeof.com. Come listen. And don't forget to keep spreading the word about the Book of Constellations and consider making a donation at glow.fm slash bookofconstellations. Thank you. Enjoy today's verse. The Book of Constellations Written, produced, and performed by W. Keith Timms Chapter 1, Verse 10 They're coming for us. They shot Pilot Quaid in the hand. They shut off the power to the hotel. Satya and I are taking cover in the business center while Rael slumps as if dizzy against a table. The soldiers of the Theta Group are coming for us in their battle dress with their guns and God knows what else. And Rael is still there by the shattered window in view of the parking lot outside and the advancing soldiers. I can hear Quaid groaning in agony on the floor, but I can't worry about him. I'm focused on Rael, who is still in the line of fire and seems confused and lost, his sunglasses misted with Quaid's blood. Rael, I call. Get down! Get away from the window! He just stares at his hands, swaying uneasily, whispering. Stop. Stop. The soldiers are getting closer. They'll be in the hotel lobby in a moment, and then have us pinned in the next. We have to go. I lift myself off of the floor, my legs fiery, my arms too weak for the urgency I feel. Since joining with Rael, I've been pushing myself more and more, and I'm not sure how much longer I can go, or if I can do what needs to be done, even with all the adrenaline I feel in my veins, jittery and hot. But I have to get to him, and then I have to get him and Satya to safety. I don't even know where that would be, but it starts by getting him out of this room. Before I can stop her, though, Satya is up, darting to Rael, pulling at him. Come on, Starbuck! We gotta go! I'm terrified that she'll be shot now, but no second bullet comes. Rael stumbles, turning to look at Quaid, who is clutching his mangled hand to his chest. Blood smeared on his pressed shirt and expensive silk tie. You should have come... Satya pulls at him again, and they start lurching toward the door. Rael nearly falls. Satya ducks under his arm to try to hold him up, but she's skinny, and he's surprisingly heavy. By now, I'm up, ignoring the tearing pain in my legs, helping her lift him, and then rushing out into the hall. What's wrong with him? She asks. I don't know. Maybe the same stuff they used in the forest. 
Behind us come the surprised cries of the hotel staff as the Theta Group storms through the front door, weapons at the ready. There's only a couple of places we can go, so I rush us toward the banquet rooms. The dark has swallowed up the hallways, but the emergency lights are on, sort of. They flicker and flutter like they were in pain, managing a little dim light before going out and struggling to come back on again. Reminds me of the way my headlights flickered when we were running from the wolves. More screams behind us. One of the banquet hall doors is still open, with pictures of the governor and Pilot Quaid posted outside. This must be where they had the fundraiser. I lead us in and close the door as quietly as I can. What do we do? whispers Satya. I take a quick look around. There's another door at the other side of the room. I'm hoping this will take us to a kitchen or a service corridor. Let's keep moving. We can't afford to get pinned down. As we head that direction, Satya asks Rael, What's wrong? Are you hurt? He still seems dizzy, kind of out of it. He murmurs something, but I don't understand him until he gets out. Door. He means the one behind us. Quick, I say. The long banquet table at the head of the room is still set up. It has a floor-length tablecloth running end to end. I pull us into the dark underneath, amid some discarded napkins and crumbs of food. I hear the door bang open. We freeze. I hope that we were fast enough. Flashlights sweep the room. There are strange blue beams visible under the skirts of the tablecloth. There's just enough light for me to make out Satya's face, hand over her mouth, her eyes wide. Rail lays on the floor, completely still. Boots tread on the carpet, moving into the room and getting closer. A soldier bumps a chair. I can see the shadow of him, thrown by the beam of his partner. The soldier speaks. Control, Theta 2. He pauses and then repeats himself, a little dissatisfied. Control, Theta 2. He then turns to his partner. Are you getting anything? Negative, says the other. Too much hiss, but we knew that. Control said keep moving. I'm holding my breath. The ache in my legs is awful. Finally, one of the soldiers says, All right, next room. They hustle back to the door they came through and leave. Satya very slowly lifts the hem of the tablecloth to peer out before signaling the all clear. Trying not to groan too much, I crawl out from under the table. Satya helps Rahel up, though she's clearly worried about me. I just gotta get us out of here, and then I'll have time for pain. The other door, sure enough, opens to a service corridor that runs from the various ballrooms to the hotel kitchen, from which I can hear voices. The flicker and emergency lights are just enough to navigate around the stacked chairs and linen hampers. And I guess, if we're gonna get out of here, the kitchen is probably the best bet. Gotta be other ways in and out of there. So that's where we go. Both of us supporting rail. There's a small knot of people here, dressed as waiters and cooks, and a couple of scullery workers. Something is wrong, though, and not just because the power is out and there are soldiers roaming the halls. One of the cooks is sitting on the floor, breathing heavily, face contorted in pain. He's in his late fifties, and even in the flicker and light I can see he's flushed and covered in sweat. A kitchen manager type turns to us. Who are you? What's going on? 
She notices Rael drooping across our shoulders, looking no doubt gray and ashen to her eyes, not knowing that's his usual color. Is he sick too? The cook has his hand on his chest, squeezing. The manager says, It started when the lights went out. He has a pacemaker. Something is wrong with it. We tried calling 911, but our phones don't work. Satya pulls hers from her pocket and frowns at the screen. I have no bars, and it's acting weird, flickering. Whatever they're using is affecting the phones, and maybe this guy's pacemaker, too. Rail manages to stand up on his own, though he seems to have a hard time focusing, his head turning uncertainly. Or maybe he's looking at things that aren't there. I say to him, any idea about what to do? We're starting to make a habit of getting pinned down in kitchens by armed men, and maybe we should do something else, huh? With effort, Rail says, Leave me. Satya snorts. <laughs> No way, he repeats. Leave me. You two are in danger. This man needs help. Pilot Quaid needs help. If they take me, they will turn off their machine. You can call an ambulance. It's the right thing to do, Satya says. What about the darkness? Are you just going to give up? It's the right thing to do. No, she says. It's not. It's not right that these soldiers are hunting you. They are causing this man's heart attack. They shot Quaid. And if you give up, then the darkness wins. It's not right for the darkness to win. You have to stand, Rael. Too many people turn away. Believe me, I know. It's too much. The, the fear and anger and ignorance allowed to run loose in the world? It feels like more than a person can do anything about. But maybe if they saw someone stand and face it, to be the one to say, no, stop, then maybe they'd stand too. And you can't do that if you're in whatever black hole they're going to throw you into. Rail stares at the floor, one arm bracing himself against the tile wall. No more deaths. No more deaths. She says, Can you stop death now? He lifts his chin, watching her through his blood-misted sunglasses. Not yet. She smirks. Well, keep working on that. In the meantime, we mortals will find another way. Satya asks the cook, Can you walk? I don't think so, he says. You others, get him on something. A rolling chair, one of those luggage trolleys, I don't know. Get out of the hotel and head down the street. Keep going until you get a signal on your phones, then call 911. I bet whatever this machine they're using is, it has a range. They start making preparations and she turns back to us. Now we just gotta get out of here. I say, okay, but the soldiers are sweeping the halls. They'll see us and we can't hide in here forever. She worries her lower lip a bit as she thinks that over, but then her eyes find the big fire alert system mounted on the wall, a control panel for the whole hotel. Look, the lights on that, they're not flickering, they're steady. Sure enough, they are. I say, most emergency systems like that have their own power supply. She strides over to it, and without a second thought, throws the main alarm switch. Emergency signals mounted on walls all over the hotel start to flash. 
A shriek and alarm blares, though the sound is torn apart by regular pulses of static and distortion. It makes it a lot more alarming, actually. What are you doing? I ask her. Giving us some cover. Come on. The cook is getting wheeled out by the staff. We follow them to the kitchen entrance through a few side corridors and unmarked doors. The halls are starting to fill up with confused guests, some in their robes and pajamas milling about. Why do they do that? The power goes out and a fire alarm goes off and they still stand around wondering if it's a drill or a mistake. It's an inconvenient threat. At least I don't see any soldiers yet. A few people ask us, Is this a real fire? As we pass. Yes, I say. Get out now. Hopefully that will stir others to action. We need people in the parking lot too if we're going to make it to the RV. Rail is mostly walking on his own now, though he still weaves dizzily from time to time. I'm limping along as best I can. Satya is doing the best of all of us. I ask her, In case we need a room to hide in, can you pick these locks? Keycard locks like this? No way. Cheap padlocks are one thing, and I could maybe do a door with a regular key lock if I had the time. Alright, well, just keep an eye out for... The blue beam from a soldier's flashlight traces the air down at the end of the hall, between the silhouettes of confused residents dragging their luggage toward an exit. Damn. I hurry us down another hallway. I hear the shocked cries as the guests come face to face with Theta Group soldiers. A family is bustling out of a room nearby. There's a scared and bawling child clutching a stuffed rabbit with one hand and his mother with his other. Satya smiles at him as we stumble past. Don't cry, she says, trying to sound sunny amid the shrieking, distorted alarm. Your daddy said he was going to take you for ice cream tomorrow. The father smirks. Gee, thanks. Satya gives him a much more serious smile over her shoulder. Kids need their parents to buy them ice cream sometimes. Don't be stingy, dad. Then to the child once more. You're gonna be fine. God, I hope she's right. If these soldiers see us and decide to open fire, I don't want to think about who might get hit. We need to get out of here and take the danger with us. I know the general direction of the RV, and there's an exit at the back of the hotel. If we can make it there, then somehow get across the parking lot, and then down the road to safety, and unless they chase us, and... No, just... One thing at a time. More people are coming out of the rooms to stare blankly at the cacophony in the hallways. A lot of these folks were here for the rally. They're still wearing their patriotic clothes or their t-shirts with the governor's name. A lot look annoyed. Others more frightened. They don't know about the armed soldiers coming for us. Or that their idol had his fingers blown off and we left him bleeding in the business center. It occurs to me that were he here with a few accusatory words. I bet he could whip them up into a mob that would tear us apart. He did it at the rally, and he could do it again. These people are soldiers, too. They just don't know it. They're just waiting for the order, and neither they nor Quaid worry about what would happen after. No compassion, no restraint. We're near the back of the hotel now, Most of the other guests are getting out other ways. We duck into an alcove with some vending machines, which are making a strangled buzz in harmony with the distorted alarm. I'm breathing heavily. My legs are trembling. Just a little more. I can see the RV through the windows at the back door. 
I take a quick peek out of the alcove, checking the parking lot at all angles. When I see it, hell. We have a problem. Satya laughs. Oh good, another one. There's a military truck parked about 30 yards from the RV. It's got some sort of complicated equipment on top. Looks like a fancy antenna or something. Maybe that's the source of whatever is hurting Rael? Maybe. But there's a soldier with it, standing out front, armed of course. And if we go through the door, he'll spot us before we can reach the RV. Satya leans around me to squint through the window and survey the scene for herself. Okay, so, what do we do? Well, last time we did a switch. A distraction. But I don't think they're gonna fall for the same thing twice. Satya says, I don't know. People like this like to put the world into patterns. It's how they make sense of it. What's your point? They think in patterns too. Like constellations that never change. Also, remember, whatever the gizmo they're using to hurt Rael is keeping their radios from working. So they can't talk to each other. Hmm, how'd you get so smart so young? She smirks right back at me. If I didn't get smart, I'd probably be dead by now. She explains her plan. I don't like it. Let me go, I say. Simon, you're barely standing up as it is. Plus, you have to drive. Rail doesn't like the plan either. It's too dangerous, he says, struggling to stay focused. You could get hurt. The people could get hurt. No more death. I have endangered you and these innocents here. Satya places a hand on his chest. You are not the danger, Rael. The soldiers are. No one will get hurt. Promise. She says it like she can guarantee it when all of us know she can't. But she darts off back down the hallway. And so we wait, watching the Theta soldier standing before the camouflage truck with its rumbling engine and sinister machinery. It's about five minutes later when Satya walks into the parking lot on the other side of the hotel from us. I hear her cry out, Oh no! Quick! Get back! The guard at the truck turns toward her voice and whips up his rifle. The displaced hotel guests on the sidewalk scream and duck for cover. Satya runs, pushing through the crowd. I can see the soldier speaking urgently into his radio, but from his frustrated posture he's not hearing anything in return. And then he leaves the truck and runs after her. Just like that, our exit is clear. Well, damn, I say. It worked. Come on. With Rael leaning on me, we hobble out into the parking lot and head for the RV. Everything is dark with the power out. The sinister-looking truck, engine idling, throws its headlight beams across the asphalt. The big metal array on its roof seems to vibrate and hum. Rael is leaning heavily on me, and it's all the two of us can do to make forward progress. But we're there, at the RV, and I'm reaching for the keys. We'll get in, we'll be ready for when Satya returns, and then... The side door of my RV opens, and with slow, gliding steps, Dr. Mara Ostrom descends from inside. I'm so startled I slip on some gravel and fall backwards, and Rael goes with me. Dr. Ostrom holds her sidearm out and up, not pointed at us, but clearly a threat. She's still wearing her dress uniform, tight like bindings, as if it had to restrain her tense, purpose-filled body. 
and she still wears one glove on her right hand, which vanishes under her uniform sleeve. But when I saw her last, that glove was magenta. This one is an emerald green, and strangely enough, her right eye, which was also magenta before, now matches the green of her glove. The surgeon's mask is still strung tight around her lower face, but I can tell she's smiling. Found you, she says. After such a long and tedious chase, <laughs> moon or bust. She starts to make a slow, sashaying circle around us, her pistol never too far away from use. I try to stand, but she stops me with a sharp glance. Uh-uh, you look tired. Rest. It'll be so much easier for everyone. I say, why are you doing this? She sighs, a look of annoyance flickering over her half-covered face. A vague and tiresome question. Doing what? Chasing us. Kidnapping him. I am taking care of him, she says. Keeping him safe. Slowly, she unhooks the mask from around her ears, looking down at Rael with something yearning in her eyes. You don't know how dangerous you are, Rael. You don't understand how much you could hurt us. You need help. Rael is slumped on the ground, not looking at her. He seems as disoriented as ever, perhaps being so close to that machine on that truck. It's not right, I say to her. Let us go. She barely seems to notice me. Her gloved hand holds her pistol, but the other, bear, reaches out toward Rael, coming inches from his head, almost as if she wanted to caress him. The white scars that run from her lips to her strangely green eye shift and stretch as she speaks. You can go, but Rael must go with me. What? You can go when all this is over. Rid yourself of this chaotic mess he's dragged you into. No doubt he's told you silly stories. You've seen things you can't explain. But you must understand that Rael doesn't know how dangerous he really is. Funny, I say. He's not the one with the gun. She huffs, annoyed. Guns are not dangerous. People are dangerous. Isn't that what they say? Some people are. Yes. But you, Simon, can be free to go if you just don't make trouble. I guess I shouldn't be surprised she knows my name. Just like that, you're going to let me go. Yes? It would be better, I think, if you were to take your little RV and drive back to the coast and do whatever it is you were going to do before Rael dropped into your life. It would be better, I think. To pretend this was all a mad dream. Rael will get the help he needs, and I will give it to him. And everything will go back to normal. Doesn't that sound delicious? Just going back to normal. A calm world with everything in its place and everyone in their home. Time to come home. Rael manages to lift his head. My home is gone, Mara. 
and I will not let the darkness have this one, too. Her face hardens and her posture turns stiff. There. The delusion again. Did he tell you, Simon, about the darkness? Insanity, isn't it? An invisible, malevolent intelligence from the depths of time. Such a convenient enemy. It can be wherever you like it to be. There is no darkness, Rael. Why must you fight me on this? There is a flash of something dangerous in her mismatched eyes now. Tension in that green-gloved hand around the pistol grip. Rael struggles up to his knees. I want to believe the darkness has not yet taken you completely, Mara. That I can still find a way into your heart. At those words, her green and gray eyes go wide. The veneer of control breaks. She takes a couple of jerky steps backwards, away from us in the RV, staring down at him with a mix of awe and fear. Suddenly, the military truck is bearing down on her. The engine is roaring, the wheels crunching over asphalt, the bright headlights spearing her. She spins toward it and raises her hand as if that and her will alone could deflect the oncoming vehicle. At the last moment, she dives to the side. The truck goes rushing past, and I see the door open and Satya leap out of the cab. She hits the pavement, rolls, yelping as she scrapes up her knees and hands. The truck has enough momentum to keep going, mounting the curb at the end of the parking lot, and then dropping down a grassy embankment beyond. Top-heavy, it pitches over and crashes onto its side. The machines on top of it go quiet. The hotel lights flicker back on. The fire alarm still blares, but it's clear and shrill. Satya is running over to us. Come on, come on! Dr. Ostrom pushes herself up off the ground. Her weapon has been thrown somewhere, but she's got her hand to her face. With a gasp, she begins searching the ground frantically, feeling around with her hands, peering under cars. She turns toward us, but she isn't seeing us. That's when I notice that her green right eye, the one that matched her green glove, is missing. Instead, surrounded by those white scars is an empty eye socket, and she's desperate to find the glass eye that rested within. But we don't wait. We get in and go. The RV bounces heavily on its way out of the parking lot, but once on the road, I push her as fast as she'll go. I say to Satya, I thought you said you didn't... I thought you said you didn't know how to drive. She smirks. You call that driving? I took a few lessons, but then when my mom wouldn't let me get a license as a girl, I decided just to wait until I was old enough to do it myself. Well, you did good, young lady. Did you hotwire that thing or something? I didn't have to, she says. They left the keys in it and the engine running. We laugh, despite what we're leaving behind. A flood of relief, I guess. Maybe even admiration for our own cleverness. Feels good. I guess that's why it takes us a few minutes to notice that Rael isn't saying anything. He's sitting in the passenger seat, stony, withdrawn, pulled in on himself under his poncho. Now this isn't his usual distant self, with his mind elsewhere, thinking about everything, I guess. No, this is something else. He's lost. Defeated. Hey, uh, Rael, I say. Are you okay? He doesn't answer for a long time. But then he says, She was right. I am a threat. A threat to everything in this world. 
I don't know what to say to that. Uh, no, that's not... I mean, you're not. It's, um... Look, we need to find a place to hide out for a while. And when we do, we'll work all this out. Okay? But he doesn't answer. In fact, he doesn't say anything at all for nearly two days. The Book of Constellations is written, produced, and performed by W. Keith Timms. Music in this episode included Untitled and Room Reverberating by Itzin Sasuryat and One March Day by Smaller Tide. Information about these artists can be found at bookofconstellations.com. Additional music by Free Sound Collective. The theme is Cycles by Pictures of the Floating World. You can help this show a lot by sharing it on social media or making a donation at glow.fm slash bookofconstellations. Peace until next verse.